all of this, all of these signals, all of these trends, all of these drivers came out of a context. They came from somewhere. They didn't happen in a vacuum. And it's finding out what that context is. That, to me, is really important. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Madeline Ashby. Madeline is a highly successful science fiction writer and an in-demand freelance consulting futurist, specializing in scenario development and science fiction prototypes. Her novels include Vienne, the First Machine Dynasty, and Company Town, which I recently very much enjoyed reading. Her work has appeared in Boing Boing, Slate, MIT Technology Review, Wired, The Atlantic, and many other places. You can find more on her work at MadelineAshby.com, that's M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E, A-S-H-B-Y, and on Twitter at Madeline Ashby. In this episode, Madeline shares insights on watching the fringes, finding common threads, sensing and sense-making, using murder walls, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Madeline's great insights. Madeline, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. You're not only a futurist and able to make sense of what's going on, you also envisage very clearly what's happening in the future. We'd just love to understand how it is you see what's going on in the world and make sense of it. Where do you start? What are your daily practices? Um, there's far too much doom scrolling, for one. Uh, there's far too much doom scrolling. There's a lot of media consumption from other countries. I work really hard to watch stuff from other places, hear things in other languages, see what's funny somewhere else. And, and sort of see what people are consuming elsewhere. And one of the things that I always say is, especially the students, is that one of the things that it's good to do is to sort of see what's happening at the fringes. So whatever struggle is happening at the fringes will often, commonly, makes its way to the mainstream eventually. And the speed at which that happens has gotten a lot faster. So that rate that rate of change, I would say, has gotten a lot faster, mostly thanks to mass communication technology that you can know, you can observe, you know, what is happening to a very niche group very far away from your own world and and see and see immediately, you know, how it might apply to you uh, or, or how it might mirror uh, conditions on the ground where you are. And so I think that 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 speed has changed being able to observe that rate of change um, is a little bit different now. How do you determine what is the fringe or from the entire fringe, what it is that's worth paying attention to? I always consider your fringe if the, you're a fringe if 
if people are trying to determine or legislate your existence. Like if you are the subject of law, if you are the subject of like having your identity reframed by law. The literal societal fringe. Yeah, <laughs> then you're then that's a really good indicator. Then that's a societal fringe issue. But but the, I mean, we could say that that's true of of a financial fringe as well or an economic fringe as well, because, you know, the there the discourse around what is considered poverty and what is considered wealth you know, remember that rash of trends pieces about like, are these people middle class or aren't they? You know, those things are also determined and they are also the subject of of argument and the subject of legislation. And so it's, you can sort of move people to and from that fringe, you know, in the space of a word. And so I think that uh, I always see who is the subject of of that kind of maneuvering. Is part of it identifying explicitly these are the fringes that I will look at? Um, there's certainly the fringes that I personally am interested in. Project by project, that'll change. Project by project, I look at different sort of crowds and different dynamics and different demographics. I look for commonalities between a bunch of different groups some some of the time. And I'm working on something right now where there are people being represented from a bunch of different groups, but they have certain common experiences that the storytelling exercise that I'm involved in can speak to, or hopefully that it can speak to it. That's that's one of the goals of the project. It's not that I'm focused so much on these tiny little micro niches. I do kind of, I am concerned with how they are similar or different to each other, but I also do try to look for common humanity, common threads of of humanity too. You are the author of many science fiction books and also co-author of the book How to Future mm-hmm. by Scott Smith, which looks at futurist methodologies. Yes. One of the methodologies uh, you cover is horizon scanning. Mm-hmm. So how does horizon scanning fit into your daily practice? Is this something you would engage with in a client project? Yes. What, what does that look like in terms of the actual scanning? I think there's daily scanning in that, you know, I like to be informed. I like to read news. You know, I like to know what's going on. I like to know what people far cooler than me are doing. (laughs) I like to know what people different from me are doing. I am an only child and an only child to my core. And so I I have always, always, always brought the outside in for myself. So I, you know, that's just a, that's a a way that I was sort of pre-adapted to the work, I guess. It's a way that I was habituated to the work. So I'm always on the lookout and I'm always sort of aware of things. When I'm working with a client, then then there's a research process and, and digging into specific language or into specific issues or into spe- specific demographics or something like that to sort of like really dig into what it is that they are interested in and, and also, you know, looking at how trends happening elsewhere might influence what it is that they're doing at the time, i.e. like when will, when will this wave make it over here? sort of like looking at weather patterns or something like that, I guess. So there's, you know, there's a research base, there's a project-based, you know, research phase that happens at the beginning of most projects. Daily, there's a practice of, like I said, like too much, actually. Like I, my, my problem is that I get too wrapped up in continuing to look. What I wish I did more of was take better notes of what it is that I do see. And if anyone is sort of looking for ways to learn from my experience, what I would say is that you should find a space 
whether it's like a spreadsheet or whether it's a daily journal or whether it's a, a note-taking app or, you know, whatever it is, you know, Miro board, Jamboard, who knows what, uh, even just a giant murder wall in your office, a way to document and categorize the signals that you're seeing. Because what I find happens, and one of the things that I would like to be better at, is that it's really easy to continue considering these these signals as individual rather than sorting them into trends if you don't have a place to put them. We talk a lot in in the book about, you know, how do you set boundaries around your time? How do you set a boundary around this? How do you stop? And I think that's one of the ways that you do stop. I think that's one of the ways to pull yourself away is to put it somewhere. And whether it's, you know, even if it's something as simple as a, as a list of bookmarks or something. Two of the key phrases in that book are sensing and sense-making. Mm-hmm. It's obviously to conceive of the future or how that might come to pass. It's far more than just looking at information. It's making sense of that. So what is that process of taking all of those ideas to make sense of them, to form some vision of how things could come to pass? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think everybody does it a little bit differently because what you're really asking is how do humans interpret information? How do humans gather and interpret information? And that is something that philosophers and neurologists and and educators have been working for thousands of years, literally, to determine. Like how do we gather information and how do we sort it and how do we make sense of it? So on the one hand, it's very you know, we're talking about a, a comparatively new discipline within futures or comparatively, you know, over the past hundred years kind of kind of language. But on the other hand, we're talking about something that has bedeviled humanity for a very long time. So I like to sort of remind people of that, that you are doing this, you are doing it all the time. What you're now doing is labeling that practice. And I do think that people, you know, how we interpret information, how we take on cognitive load, how we take on information like that is is highly individual. Different teams will have different mechanisms for doing it so that you can share that information in an effective way, you know, some people are responsive to, you know, to the big list and other people want the big murder wall. I'm a big murder wall person. Describe that. <laughs> I like seeing, th- I, I am the kind of person who will, in fact, like look at, or in my, either, either in my own mind or visually, I will like to sort things. Uh, I'll like to sort signals that, that fit together. I like color coding. I like finding a way to sort of sort that information in a way that I can share with other people. Because if you can share it with other people, then you're already be- beginning that sort of sense-making process. And you're, and you're categorizing things as ingredients. Like for me, those just become ingredients for, for, the, for whatever the final you know, project outcome is going to be. Or you can think about it almost sonically, like, okay, which instruments are we playing here? And in what key? And, and how do we orchestrate those together? What is the total sound that is being produced? So I, I tend to think of, of it as a way to listen carefully or a way to, to sort information such that you can share with other people or whether it's your team or your client or somebody else, the information that you think is the most salient to the question that is being posed. Is this using post-it notes on the wall? Yeah. Whether it's using, well, we can't do that. It's much tougher to do that now. But uh, whether it's using post-it notes on a wall, 
or you or doing that digitally or doing just like a, a basic spreadsheet or something like that or just running an ongoing conversation on certain topics whether that's you know a list server or slack channels or or what have you i think i i find that these are ongoing conversations in a lot of ways when you are noticing something in a specific field you'll know you'll keep your eye out for it for a long time and and so it's it's useful to to sort of flag that and say like oh okay this is part of the the ongoing trend here and sort of set it in a place so that you can look at the totality of the story you're also sort of charting a story i'm a narrative based kind of thinker before i did futures work i was trained as an historian and that's actually something that Scott and I have in common is that uh, we were trained to to sort of think historically and think in context. And so when I think about sense making, when I think about scanning and sorting and sense making, I tend to think of it in that way that I think of it almost more as an historian than any other kind of discipline. It's just that being trained that way informs the way that informs how I think of things now, because all of this, all of these signals, all of these trends, all of these drivers came out of a context. They came from somewhere. They didn't happen in a vacuum. And it's finding out what that context is. That's That to me is really important. There's a context and there's a chronology. Mm-hmm. Is there some way that you represent that to yourself mentally or using other visual tools? I'm terrible at drawing. <laughs> I have a design degree and can't draw a straight line. I'm bad at representing those things visually. I will tend to think of them in terms of, like in my own head, I will tend to color code them or I will think of them in terms of gradations or all th- or, or gradients of color. I'll tend to think of them in um, different kinds of uh, light. I will attach different uh, images to them mentally, you know, in terms of whether or not they can be represented in a certain way. And I think like that's no different to like sort of assigning them a mood board in your head or or giving yourself sort of a visual collage to to sort of talk about the trend. And that's the challenge that you have anytime you depict these things in a slide deck, for example. It's not too different from that, but it is, but it is a challenge and it is, you know, how do you, how do you assign something in your head? How do you assign something in your pattern of thinking is again, I think like a really interesting issue to explore within the field. How do we think of these things? How do we categorize this? Like, I feel as though it would make a really great master's project for somebody (laughs) is to ask all the futurists how they do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But it's also saying how you do it, and presumably they do it somewhat usefully, somewhat well, because that's their profession. Yeah, I feel as though it's probably different in terms of whether you're doing this by yourself or whether you're doing this with a team and whether or not you're with that team in person and whether or not you are um, sharing like a, a shared document. There's there's certain limitations of sort of software and so on. Um the and and limitations of the interface you know the the technology doesn't yet exist for me to draw for me to pull the red thread in someone else's mind for me to to show how i think that two things are connected and i think that's actually like one of the more interesting challenges within the discipline itself is sort of when you're sorting through signals and you pull something across and you say oh this is related to that You'll know right away if something is clicking, if a project is clicking, or if you have sort of chemistry with the people that you're working with, on whether or not they can see it. 
whether or not they also see it. Yeah. And and you've probably had that moment. I know I've had that moment. And you know that you're not communicating clearly when someone has to ask you. It's not like it's their fault or whatever. It's if I'm not communicating clearly, they won't necessarily see that. And if they're not, if they aren't used to sort of the connections that that can be made here, or or the way that I draw them, then they might not see how to how to wildly disparate things are are connected. And I think that that's you know. I think in pedagogy, we call that associative framing. And it's a thing that I've noticed is a real challenge for some people. Can we use this frame to think of something else? Are these two wildly different stories similar and how? And do they share a commonality? And what does that commonality say about the world or or about, you know, external pressures? And so that I think is is a thing that I you know, as you're talking about how do we make sense of this, you know, learning how to how to frame things in a way that, again, emphasizes their commonality or sees a possible commonality is really important. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. Do you think that is something which comes more or less naturally to people or, or something that we can nurture? I think it is something to be nurtured. I think it can come more naturally, but it depends on the discipline. Like, I think it's a thing that the humanities, frankly, does better than other disciplines. I think that it's a thing that I was trained to do as an historian, as a novelist, as a person who, who was broadly read. You know, that's looking, looking for those commonalities and looking for those analogs was a thing that I was trained how to do. And it's a thing that carried over into the work that I do now. But it's not a thing, I think, that, that other disciplines... At least in the in the experience in my experience that that those are emphasized in the same way that that associative framing is is sort of nurtured. Yes, that's absolutely vital. Yes, trying to make your own thoughts explicit to the purpose of communicating them helps elucidate them in your own mind. In any case, there's a story I like to tell about. I went to a Jesuit university in Seattle, and I was part of the honors program there. And the honors program there was very very small, and it was we did Heraclitus to Hitler in two years, uh, literature, philosophy, and uh, history. And we were in this tiny cohort, and it was like mini grad school, except we were, you know, undergrads. The thing that we were told at the beginning of the program was, we don't know what you guys are going to do. Some of you will be PhDs. Some of you will leave academia entirely. Some of you are going to go on to do wildly different things. But what you will know how to do by the end of your career here is how to communicate. And there will never not be a demand for people who know how to communicate. And I tell people that story a lot, that, you know, it's it's about not just finding the information, but finding out how to share it effectively. Part of that is the structure, because the relationships underlie the structure. That goes to the associations or the narrative or the continuity or what it is that links things. Yeah, the, the mental model, the shared mind palace, <laughs> the... Uh, the, the way of seeing, the way of seeing. 
Which takes us to your science fiction, because that's precisely what you're doing. You're building a vision, a world that people can enter and experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that is distinctive about science fiction from usual fiction is that you are creating a world that people have never experienced before. What's that process? Well, I think there's a... I get asked a lot about what is the difference between sort of doing foresight scenario development, you know, narrative scenario development, and that type of world building, and pure science fiction world building, or pure commercial fiction uh, world building. And one is that, you know, in commercial fiction, you can actually take up the trends that, that interest you without regard to a project brief. You're writing something for yourself. You're writing something about purely what you are interested in. And you can sort of fudge the details a little bit more. Whereas within the scope of a project brief, that's often very limited. You know, we need the future of X in year Y, in demographic Z, whereas there's a lot more room, a lot more space when you're writing something that's purely for yourself. But what they have in common is that you need to cultivate a curatorial sensibility. You have to know... In the same way that a filmmaker knows or a photographer knows or a curator knows, you have to know how big the frame is and what fits inside of it and what you want those focal points to be. You know, is this a story about, you know, a certain technology? Is this a story about a certain trend? Is this a story about what is, what is this? And in fact, what is this story about and what are you trying to say? What are these people going to walk away with when they walk away from from this story? And those considerations are the same because you only have so many words <laughs> and you only have so much time and you only have so much attentional bandwidth from, from the people who are eventually going to read this. So, you know, you can't throw in everything but the kitchen sink, you know, to make your point or to show them a world. You have to decide where the camera is going to go and what it's going to focus on. And, and I, think those are, I think those are similar considerations, regardless of, of who you're, you're writing to. It's just that one can be very tightly focused, and, and another kind of gives you a, a bigger, broader aspect ratio. <laughs> In either case, you are creating a world of content which must be internally consistent. As you said, you can only show so much of that mm -hmm. in so many words, but you are building a world. Yes. If it is... Based in the future, it's a projection forward from today, taking various trends or developments or the way those interact. Yes. What's yeah. that process of creating that world and making it consistent? I tend to look, again, you know, having, having prior experience in history, I tend to look at his, like historical examples. You know, when did something similar like this happen in the past? What happened then? You know, how has this been experienced by others in, before? And not so that I can exactly replicate that event or exactly replicate that experience, but so that I can get an understanding of how do humans behave under these pressures? You know, what have we seen before? What have we, how have we seen people, you know, behave under similar pressures? You know, it, people are still doing this now with regard to the, the current pandemic. They've looked back at 1918. In a hundred years, other humans will look back at what happened in 2020. And then probably back into 1918. So I think that um, it always pays off to look back and say, oh, okay, how do humans react in this scenario? Because humans are the ones who build the world, right? They're the ones who make choices about that world. Again, it doesn't just happen. Those things don't spring up out of nowhere. 
And so, you know, the world is this way because in many ways people chose it to be this way or because someone profited from it being this way. And so those there are fundamental drives in our species that shape our reality. And and so I, I tend to go into when I'm building something or sort of imagining how something might turn out, I tend to look at pr- prior examples and think about how that might have changed or what might cause it to change or what would have to change in a population or what would have to change uh, for in a group for that to be different. So in a way, all sense-making comes from an understanding of humanity? I, I think so. I mean, like, I think that, you know, the there's obvious things like what does a rising temperature do to a population of animals? You know, what does a what does a heat dome do to all the shellfish in British Columbia? It kills them. We know that. That has nothing to do with, but like, you know, humans were involved in that process, undoubtedly, but it's a one-to-one relationship. We know that that heat is going to kill those animals. So there's there's certain there are certain you know scientific truths and certain you know laws of physical reality that that you take into account and and certainly like very far future hard SF is really good at that sort of extrapolating what human life would be like under certain physical conditions way far off of our planet how do we find a way to continue reproducing in space? How do we find a way to live in space without our skeleton stretching out? How do we find a way to live in space without our, without our fingernails falling off and, you know, half of the men developing astigmatism over time? You know, there are certain physical truths that occur. There are certain realities that you have to acknowledge and figure out. But that's the fun part. That's not the homework. That's the fun part. <laughs> and I think, like, that's the... The, the right bent, you have to be kind of bent in the right direction uh, to enjoy that. And, and I think that's where, you know, getting to think creatively about that is, is one of the pro- pleasures and privileges of both of my jobs. Absolutely. To round out, do you have any final words of advice for listeners on how to thrive on overload, how to make sense of the wonderful world of information that we live in today? Take notes. Take notes. I actually, it's so, it's funny because I'm, I'm sort of the, the, the third wheel in an MBA course right now. I have uh, two uh, brilliant real instructors, Zan Chandler and Susan uh, L.K. Gorbett, and they are amazing instructors and I'm just sort of the, you know, peanut gallery. One of the things that we talked about with our students recently was that, you know, you won't remember. You think that you'll remember. You think that you're going to remember, but you won't. So when you see these signals, when you see these trends pieces, when you see these these stories that trouble you or delight you or or um or a thing that sort of gives you that that sense of oh wait this is different this is new uh, or oh this is exciting or huh I can't wait to see how this one goes wrong <laughs> um, find a way to document it. Find a way to add it to the to the total corpus of knowledge. Find a way to do that so that you can reach back and look more deeply into the things that fascinated you. You know, take those notes. You know, t- find a place to put those fleeting thoughts. Because I find that, like, I think a lot of people, when we talk about doom scrolling, when we talk about uh, social media, when we talk about information, how to how to information overload, 
one of the reasons that we get attached to stories and don't know what to do with that attachment, when we get attached to information or attached to images and we don't know, you know, and we find them sort of, we find them preying on us later or we find huge amounts of cognitive load attached to them later, it's because you haven't put them somewhere. And I'm not saying compartmentalize. That's not my advice here. My, my advice is create boundaries for yourself and find a place to put all of your imaginings, a place to put those suppositions, a place to put um, those questions. Find a place to put your questions, you know, not so that you can forget them, but so that you can remember them later and document the history of them for yourself. You know, find a place that's just for you to put those things. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Madeline. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.